This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Good morning to everyone. Certainly appreciate the song service. In the prayer this morning, uh, two of the songs I had never heard before, one that Brian led and one that Brother Caitlin led, and I thought they were both beautiful, and I'd like to hear them again, maybe learn them, but uh, it's good to see everyone. Looks like we're almost back to full capacity again, the way we were. I hope and pray the things that we look at this morning will be beneficial to everyone. talking to Brother David on the way in this morning uh, up the steps. I said, I was thinking about you yesterday. When David was in his late teens, I was in my early teens. And one of my brother-in-laws and him were really good friends. And so there was a lot of summers where we'd meet over at Boonville City Lake for Fourth of July or whatever. And we'd cook out and swim. And uh, there's a big bridge over there. <laughs> and we'd jump off that bridge into uh, Boonville City Lake. And I asked David, I said, you remember how cold that water got? <laughs> he said, oh, it was ice cold down in there. Middle of the summer, and you hit that water, and it was warm, hot, then warm. And then the further down you went, the colder it got. And it was deep. And I'd, as soon as I hit the water, I'd claw like mad just to try to keep from feeling that cold water. And then my mind would start thinking about what could be down there. Grab my feet. Then once you got back to the service, you forgot all about what was below you and you started looking for water moccasins and seeing how you could get to the shore without getting, <laughs> getting into a water moccasin. Good memories there. I don't know why studying dysfunctionality brought that up. but. <laughs> few weeks ago, as y'all know, all of our kids were home, and our grandkids and our son-in-laws. It was a grand time. And I was sitting there on the couch listening to my kids <laughs> talk about naughty times when Daddy was at work, Mom wasn't around, and I found out I had a dysfunctional family, and I didn't know it. <laughs> it was fun laughs. Story after story of naughty things they'd done that we never knew about. Some of them we had, some of them we didn't. But I got to thinking about hearing their stories reminded me of stories that I had been told about my parents, Cindy's parents, my grandparents on both sides. <clears throat> promised myself I wouldn't get emotional. I even, I'm going to read my entire sermon so that I don't get emotional. Try not to, but anyway. I got to thinking about our family here, the body of Christ. Some of you I've known since I was a teenager. Some of you I've known all your life. I've known your parents all my life. Some of you I've only known in the last few years, some very recently. 
But I've known David the longest. I know David. But I don't know anything about David. I don't know David. Most of you known me for a while. You don't know me. We don't know each other. Because many times, all we know about each other is what we want each other to know about us. And there's this facade that we put up. And we don't let anybody look behind it and see who we are. And we hide behind that facade. And yeah, my clothes may be out of date. Nobody dresses like this much anymore. But this is who I am. That I want this. I'm comfortable the way I dress. Yes, some of the stuff I have on is older than every child in here, no matter how old they are. This knife and sheath that I come across again recently, I got this when I was a, in high school, maybe a junior. I got it from selling Jimmy Dean sausage as a fundraiser for Agri class. Other than just hanging there, it's useless. I don't, I don't use it. But it ties me to a time that I enjoyed. These boots and this belt I bought just before the summer camp meeting in Salem, Arkansas in 2006. Over half this congregation wasn't born. Yeah, the boots have been reworked a few times, but they're comfortable and they're broke in. So I'm comfortable. I'm not in style but I'm comfortable. All of you look good. I hope you're comfortable. We present to people how we're comfortable or the way we want them to see us as. But inside who we are, many times, we don't know each other and people don't know us. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that we are to share with one another who we are in the body of Christ in good times and bad, through thick and thin, pull down those facades, and that breaks Satan's hold in our life, in our family's life. If we don't, Satan still has power over our, our life. So keep that in mind as we go through this study this morning. I want to start by reading a story I came across and studying this. <clears throat> a true story. It says, we grew up with nine kids in our family with an abusive alcoholic father who had a strap. A strap is leather strips attached to a wooden handle. Hanging over the back of his chair at all times. And he was not afraid to use it on us. The thing that often saved us, our grandparents on our mother's side lived in the same yard and we sometimes ran there for refuge. We all ran away from home at an early age to make a living for ourselves, except for the youngest boy who got treated better and was the only one left to help on the farm. I myself married a farmer and helped my husband with everything 
on our dairy farm. We had two children. And now, being a grandmother, I realize how I have missed out, not knowing how to show my kids love, even though I would do anything to protect them from harm. I always made sure that they were fed, had clean clothes, lunch for school, etc., but realized after getting a TV how to show your kids love. Even though I loved them with all my heart, I did not know how to show it. I find it still affects my life. Now, even though I am 88 years old, I feel depressed. Is there hope for me? I feel clumsy showing affection. Laura Grift, and she posted this February 15th of 2020 at 8.49 a.m. I shared that story because I can relate to a lot of what she had to say. And maybe you can too. The definition of dysfunctional just simply means abnormal or unhealthy behavior within a group or a family. The material that I'm fixing to share with you is not my own material, but it's material that I found that expressed how I feel and what I want to present. And it's material that I intentionally looked for from a specific source that I trusted from a ministry just north of us in a neighboring state. Although it is not a new word, most of us never heard the term dysfunctional until a few years ago. At the time of this writing, a few years ago was back in the 80s, and that is when the word was pretty much spawned in this culture of dysfunctional family. Because I remember when people started talking about the word, it was in the 80s. Dysfunctional has become one of the buzzwords of this mixed-up generation. The dictionary defines the noun dysfunction as the disorder of or impaired functioning of a bodily system or organ. In layman's terms, that means your body doesn't work the way it's supposed to. But that's not exactly how the word is used today. Most often we hear dysfunctional applied to human relationships. We hear of dysfunctional families and dysfunctional marriages, for example, and in both cases, dysfunctional describes intimate human relationships that don't work the way they're supposed to work. Go to your favorite secular or Christian bookstore and you'll find dozens of books with the word dysfunctional in the title, such as Secrets of a Dysfunctional Family, Healing a Dysfunctional Marriage, Overcoming Your Dysfunctional Childhood, Dysfunctional Relationships, Where They Come From and How to Change Them, our particular focus in this study is on dysfunctional families. Here's a working definition. A dysfunctional family is one in which there has been a major breakdown in the basic relationships within the family so that the family itself no longer functions properly. 
Now, like I said, we may not know each other intimately. We're around each other enough to know that this room right now is made up of a bunch of dysfunctional families. That's just the honest truth. And the generation before us, same way. How far back does this dysfunction go? A long ways, and I'm fixing to show you. There's five symptoms of a dysfunctional family that we want to look at or mention. Number one is estrangement. Family members who avoid other family members. Number two, anger. And it may be expressed or repressed. Everybody shows anger differently. Lack of trust. Seen in faulty patterns of communication. Number four, deception. Inability to speak the truth to other family members. And five, unhealthy secrecy. Refusal to face the truth. It's a lot of lying, deception, dishonesty. You may find one or more of these traits in healthy families from time to time. But dysfunctional families adopt these traits as a normal pattern of life. It may surprise you to know that although the word is new, the concept of a dysfunctional family is not new at all. The idea itself goes back to the very beginning of time. After all, the real cause of dysfunctionality is the entrance of sin into the human race. Ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God, every family has been dysfunctional to one degree or another. As long as you have sin, even the best relationships will be less than perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect family. Never has been, and there never will be as long as sin is part of the human condition. Sin distorts everything we do and say. It colors life so that no marriage, no family, no parent-child relationship is truly perfect. Like I said, dysfunctional families aren't new. It's not surprising that when we turn to the pages of Holy Scripture, we don't have to look very far to find dysfunctional family relationships. Consider the very first family, Adam and Eve, who blamed each other for their own disobedience. When God showed up, they were pointing at each other. She did it. He did it. They did it. Everybody did it but me. Consider their children, Cain, murdered his brother Abel. Consider Noah's three sons. Ham disgraced his father by uncovering his nakedness. Consider Abraham and Sarah. He lied about his wife, calling her his sister. His nephew Lot turned out to be a major disappointment. And consider David. Although he was a great king, a great warrior, and a great poet, as a father and a husband, he was a failure. His marriage to Michal was largely a failure. His marriage to Bathsheba was based on an adulterous affair, and his son Absalom turned against him 
As his kingdom crumbled, so did his family. If you want another example, consider the family of Jacob and Esau. Let's start two generations before with Abraham and Sarah. The dysfunction began with Sarah, when Sarah is unable to conceive. So Abraham sleeps with Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. And when Abraham goes into Hagar, a son is created whose name is Ishmael. The resulting relationship causes so much strain between Sarah and Hagar that Hagar runs away. At length, Hagar returns, gives birth to Ishmael, and a tenuous peace is restored until Sarah gives birth to Isaac. At which point, Abraham, in response to Sarah's complaints, sends Hagar and Ishmael away for good. What's going on here? Not only do Sarah and Hagar not get along, neither do Ishmael and Isaac get along. We pass now to the second generation. Isaac marries Rebekah, and after 20 years, she gives birth to Jacob and Esau. But the boys are very different. And Isaac prefers Esau, while Rebekah loves Jacob. This family favoritism is not hidden to the two boys, who become rivals and not allies. While sibling rivalry is a fact of life, even in the best of families, in dysfunctional families, the rivalry becomes the defining fact of family life. That's what happens with Jacob and Esau. Because of their vastly different personalities and because of parental favoritism, they are destined to be, to be rivals and sometimes <clears throat> bitter enemies. And this lasted as long as they lived. When we come to Genesis chapter 27, the three generations of family dysfunction are about to come to a fearful climax. Those patterns of unhealthy relationships ultimately will destroy Jacob's own family. What you see at the beginning of this chapter is a family that, while not working very well, at least is staying together. By the end of the chapter, the family has been blown apart once and for all. There are four characters in this story, Isaac the father, Rebekah the mother, and the two sons, Jacob and Esau. We want to note the two facts about these four characters. Number one, all four are presented in a negative light in this chapter. Number two, these four people never appear together at the same time. You know... There is nothing I enjoy more than sitting down at the dinner table and all my family's there together eating. That brings me such joy. But oh, how rare that is becoming where a family sits down to eat together. But not one time does it show this family together at all. Furthermore, Jacob and Esau are now so far separated in their relationship that they never appear together at all. This is a portrait of a dysfunctional family hanging by a thread that self-destructs because of sinful patterns of impersonal deception that have never been confronted and resolved. The story begins with Isaac believing that he is about to die. His fondest dream is to ensure that before he dies, his son Esau obtains the cherished blessing. Now old and frail, Isaac's sight is failing him. He sends him out to hunt some wild game for him. Isaac says, 
prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. His intentions are clear. Isaac still wants Esau to have the rights of the firstborn after he, Isaac, is dead. In sending him out to hunt for game, he is asking him to do what a firstborn son should do. Take his place as the head and provider for the family. Once his son had prepared the meal, Isaac would then be free to give him the blessing. What's wrong with that? Ordinarily, nothing would be wrong with it. But God had already spoken and declared before the boys were born that the older will serve the younger. That meant that Jacob should be treated as the firstborn. Throughout all the years, Isaac had evidently never been willing to accept God's choice of Jacob over Esau. Now at last, his plans to give Esau the blessing in deliberate defiance of God's will. In doing this, Isaac is making four mistakes. Number one, he is clearly trying to overturn what God had said. Number two, he is ruled completely by his senses. And three, he ignores the fact that Esau is spiritually unqualified for the blessing. And lastly, he conspires in secret with Esau to hide his plan from Rebekah and Jacob. None of this matters to Isaac. He wants his favorite son to have the blessing. And he has to connive to make it happen. That's exactly what he will do. If he has to deceive his wife and his other son, then so be it. The deception we find in Genesis chapter 27, 5 through 29. But the plan didn't work. It didn't work out because Rebekah was secretly listening to Isaac and Esau. More deception, more secrecy. She then repeats to Jacob what she overheard, and then she cooks up a scheme of her own. Still more deception, more secrecy. Her plan is simple. Jacob is to go kill two choice goats, and Rebekah will cook up a tasty meal for Isaac. Jacob will serve it to his father while pretending to be his brother, thus tricking Isaac into giving him the blessing. When Jacob hears this amazing plan, he has only one reservation. What if he touches me? This is essentially a technical objection along the lines of, what if the Russians catch me and, I di and discover I don't speak Russian? Jacob evidently had no moral objection to the idea of deceiving his father. He just wants to know what to do if he gets caught. Note his words. I would appear to be deceiving him. Wrong. He wouldn't appear to be deceiving him. He would be deliberately deceiving him. There is a vast difference between appearance and reality when deception is involved. But Jacob doesn't seem to appreciate that point. When he says, but a curse will come upon me if I am caught, Rebekah replies in the words of mothers throughout history, just do what I say. Clearly, Rebekah is the dominant leader in this family. I would surmise her personality with these four words, strong, Resourceful, decisive, and cunning. She is the prime mover in this story, and it seems in the family as well. It appears that Isaac has abdicated his position of spiritual leadership in favor of his wife. Who thought of the deception? 
Rebecca. Who said, go get the food? Rebecca. Who said, put on this goat skin? Rebecca. Who said, let the blame fall on me? Rebecca. Who said, leave home till Esau cools off? Rebecca. At every point, she is in charge. She always has an answer for every question and a solution for every problem. One question. If this was so brazenly wrong, why did Jacob do it? First, because he was under pressure from his mother. And secondly, because he wanted the blessing so badly. Third, because he believed the end justified the means. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's the way our society is now. Ends justify the means. That is on front and center stage in our society today, isn't it? The ends justify the means. Number four, because he didn't respect his father sufficiently. I think Jacob said to himself, God wants me to have the blessing, so if I have to cheat a little bit to get it, that's all right. God will understand. Jacob is half right. God did want him to have the blessing. And God did understand what he was doing, but that didn't make it right. What happens next is so well known that it hardly needs repeating. Jacob, wearing the goat skin prepared by his mother on his arm, carries the tray of food to the father, Isaac. Although he is old and decrepit, senses that something is wrong. His mind tells him that Esau couldn't have gotten the wild game so fast and the voice didn't sound like Esau. Note the many ways that Jacob deceived his father. Number one was deliberate deception. I am Esau, your firstborn. Number two was blasphemy. The Lord your God gave me success. Number three was repeated deception. Are you really my son, Esau? I am, he replied. Number four was dishonest intimacy. So he went to him and kissed him. Five, misleading detail. Isaac caught the smell of his clothes. But this should not surprise us. This is what happens whenever you set off on the path of deception. This follows whenever you say it doesn't matter how we do it. Jacob's lies are bound to happen because he decided that the end justified the means. Soon one lie leads to another and then another and finally you have to keep on lying to cover up your previous lies. That's an easy trap and an easy, endless cycle to get caught up in, kids. When you tell one lie, nine times out of ten, you're going to have to tell another one to cover up that one. And the path that that Satan will lead you down in that is not a path you want to go down. Let's look at the blessing. In any case, Isaac sets his doubts aside and gives Jacob, thinking he is Esau, the blessing. The blessing basically involves three things. Number one was personal property, verse 28. Number two was the preeminence. And thirdly, the protection of, by God, verse 29. In essence, Jacob now receives from Isaac the blessings revealed in the Abrahamic covenant. One other note. In this scenario, who is deceiving whom? On one hand, Jacob is 
definitely deceiving his father Isaac. However, Isaac, because he thinks Jacob is really Esau, thinks he is deceiving Jacob by giving the blessings to Esau. Both intend to deceive the other, only Jacob succeeds. The most amazing point is that through this act of deception, God's will was done. Why? Because God, God's choice, Jacob, did in fact end up with the blessing. That doesn't justify the deception, but it does demonstrate how God works through the weakness of sinful men to accomplish His purposes. This story, seen in that light, is a story of the sovereignty of God. It reminds me of the words Joseph utters many years later. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Genesis 50 and 20. Both Isaac and Jacob had less than noble motives, but God overruled their bad motives to ensure that His will was ultimately done. We want to look at the disintegration of this family. Now Jacob has what he wanted all along. But because he obtained it through fraudulent means, he will soon pay a heavy price. You kids think you're getting away with all the naughty stuff that you're doing in your life right now? And yes, yeah, we, we know you're doing naughty stuff in your life because you're a kid. Just like we're adults. And we still do naughty stuff in our life. We all do naughty stuff in our life. The difference is, most of us adults know that we can't get away with it for very long. But the younger you are, Satan can trick you into thinking that you can get away with it and that you have gotten away with it. So listen to this story if you think you're getting away with the naughty stuff you're doing. After Isaac finished blessing Jacob, the real Esau came in and Jacob said, Who are you? I am Esau. The Bible says that Isaac trembled violently. It means that the old man shook uncontrollably as the shocking truth hit home. Jacob had deceived him. In a blinding flash of insight, he realized what he had just done. Two facts hit him immediately. Number one, Jacob had deceived him. And number two, the blessing was gone forever. Once the blessing was given, it had the force of a legal contract and could not be revoked. That's what Isaac means when he says in verse 33, I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. He couldn't take it back. Now the full weight of what he has happened hits Esau. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. In other words, Daddy, don't you have a blessing for me? Jacob came and stole your blessing, he said. The, word, the name Jacob means cheater. Then Esau said, Isn't he rightfully named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing, meaning my brother has lived up to his name. He is a true Jacob. He's a cheater by nature. Thus the name Jacob became a picture of his basic nature. He was willing to justify anything to get whatever he wanted in life. Before you feel too sorry for Esau, ask yourself, who caused this problem? Ultimately, it started because Esau despised his own birthright. If he had properly valued the birthright, Jacob 
could never have tricked him out of it. We're almost to the end of the story. At Esau's request, Isaac gives him a blessing, but it is clearly inferior to Jacob's. Verse 41 informs us that Esau held a grudge against Jacob. He even said to himself, After my father dies, I'm going to kill you, my brother Jacob. All of that is understandable. Who can blame Esau for being angry? His brother had cheated him twice. Let's look at Rebecca again. At this point, Rebecca steps back into the picture. She tells Jacob to run for his life because Esau will surely kill him. She advises him to visit his uncle, her brother Laban, in Haran, about 500 miles away. Eventually, Esau's anger would cool and Rebekah would, according to her plan, send a message for Jacob to come home. Mama knew her boys, didn't she? She knew that Esau had a merciful, had a had a bad temper, but that his anger would fade as quickly as it came. Esau wasn't the kind of man to keep a grudge. He was quick to be angry and also quick to forgive. Rebecca thought Jacob would return home in a few weeks or months. Little did she know that Jacob would stay with his uncle Laban for 20 long years. But that's another story. One final detail, and our story is over. She has to find a way to justify sending Jacob to Haran. So she tells Isaac that she wants Jacob to find a wife from among their own people and not from among the pagan Hittites. In effect, she's giving Isaac a cover story. Isaac agrees, calling Jacob to his side, repeating the Abrahamic blessing and sending him off to Haran to find a wife. What do you have when you stand back and take this story as a whole? What you have is a dysfunctional family that in the beginning is barely holding together. In the end, the family collapses under the weight of deception and dishonesty. Jacob got what he wanted, but think of it this way. In the beginning, Jacob didn't have the blessing. In the end, he did. Jacob got what he wanted, but because he got it through fraudulent means, it cost him his own family. His family is destroyed. He is penniless. He is homeless. He is fleeing for his life. He is estranged from his brother. He has humiliated his father. As far as we know, he never saw his mother, Rebecca, again. One last note, because Jacob left and Esau stayed home, Jacob forfeited all the material property that would have been his through his inheritance from Isaac. He got what he wanted, but he lost his own family. Why? Because he wouldn't wait on God. Chuck Swindoll calls waiting the hardest discipline of the Christian life. Waiting the hardest discipline of the Christian life. Psalms 37 and 15 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Most of us don't want to be still and we don't want to wait. We want our answers right now. Growing up in a dysfunctional, abusive home, I could not wait to get grown and leave home. How about you? You in a hurry to leave home because you got it so bad? After being gone for over 30 years, and I look back, now it wasn't so bad. It wasn't so bad. 
Let's look at two undeniable truths. While this story speaks to us on many levels, perhaps the chief lesson has to do with the importance of waiting on God. We can look at this truth both positively and negatively. Those who wait on the Lord, though it is difficult, will in the end not be disappointed. Those who impatiently try to force God's hand may get what they want, but in the process they will lose everything of value in life. Let's try a question out for the second time. What are you willing to trade in life in order to get what you want? Your family? Your friends? Your career? Your children? Your purity? Your integrity? To say it another way, what kind of deal are you willing to make in order to force God's hand? Remember, there are no shortcuts with God. Every shortcut turns out to be a dead-end street. Those who take shortcuts end up wandering aimlessly through life. Write it down in big letters. God doesn't need your help to fulfill His will in your life. That's the number one lesson of this story. If He wants to give a blessing, He can give it. If He wants to elevate you, He can do it. If He wants to raise you up at a position of great power, He can do it. If God wants Jacob to have the birthright, there's no way Esau can keep it. If God wants Jacob to have the blessing, there's no way Esau can get it. If God wants Jacob to have the blessing, there's no way Isaac can give it to Esau. No way. Can't happen. Not in a million years. God doesn't need Jacob's help. Or Rebecca's either. If God wants to, if God wants to He can work a miracle, or He can arrange the circumstances, or He can simply change Isaac's mind or just strike him dead. God is infinitely creative when it comes to finding ways to accomplish His purposes on earth. But when we interfere, when we try to help God out, we only mess things up. The ironic truth is that whenever we try to help God out, we may in fact get whatever it was we wanted, but the price will be too high. Which of the five types of dysfunctional families do you have or do you live in? Are you filled with dread at the thought of going home? Is your family constantly at war with each other? Do you feel neglected or worry about a possible violent outburst in your home? You may think you're the only one whose family's life is filled with tension strife, and emotional chaos. You'd be wrong. Far too many people are living in families where communication, emotional support, and love are in short supply. Growing up in a dysfunctional family can leave you emotionally scarred and set you up for a lifetime of issues. Not all dysfunctional families are the same, though. And each type can create specific problems that carry on into adulthood. Here are five types of dysfunctional families. Number one, the substance abuse family. Is there substance abuse in your family? Do you think there's anybody in here that struggles with substance abuse of some kind? 
you'd be surprised how many people suffer from substance abuse of some kind. There's people that can suffer from substance abuse and people outside the family not ever know it their entire life. In the last few years, it's been brought to my attention of a couple of men that suffer from substance abuse that I'd have never thought it. One of them is in my own family. Never knew it. I bet his children did. I bet his wife did. Over 8 million children under the age of 18 live with a parent who has a substance use disorder. According to research in social work and public health, when one or more parents abuse drugs or alcohol, it can lead to a chaotic family life. Children of alcoholics or drug addicts may not have their basic needs met. The addicted parents may forget to pick up the kids from school, neglect to fix lunch or dinner, and skip important health checks. Unreliable and inconsistent parenting causes children to feel insecure and leads to issues with trust and pent-up anger that may linger for decades. Living in constant fear, being blamed for problems that parents create, the parent creates and feeling ashamed impact the ability to form healthy relationships later on in life. Children of alcoholics are prone to develop overactivity in the amygdala, the brain's fear center, and can contribute to mental health conditions such as anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and depression. And research in drug and alcohol dependencies shows they are at heightened risk of developing substance use disorders. Number two, the conflict-driven family. You don't have conflicts in your family, do you? Maybe we don't have conflicts in our family either, but we should just skip this one, huh? Especially on Sunday morning, no conflict in the family. Ooh, Sunday. Is your family life filled with heated arguments, hurtful disputes, and long-running feuds? When family members are constantly picking fights or pressing each other's buttons to create conflict, it creates a highly stressful environment. When one family member feels threatened, they may retaliate with even more hateful actions. It doesn't really matter what the conflicts are about, money, personal style, where to go to dinner, or what to watch on TV. It's the inability to communicate and resolve issues peacefully that causes lasting damage. Children in conflict-oriented families often develop stress disorders and have trouble with attachment. Number three, the violent family. Did you grow up in a violent family? Each year, approximately 4.5 to 15 million children are exposed to some form of physical violence in the home. Growing up in a volatile or violent family is a horrific experience that no one deserves. Family violence is not only physical, it can also include verbal, sexual or psychological abuse, or any other behavior that makes you feel unsafe. For children, Simply witnessing domestic abuse can have the same devastating effects as experiencing abuse oneself, according to 2018 research in JAMA Network Open. Childhood trauma causes physical changes in the developing brain 
that are associated with an increased risk of psychiatric disorder and substance abuse. For example, brain imaging research shows that children who grew up, grew up in a, an abusive environment tend to have decreased volume in the prefrontal cortex, an area involved in judgment, impulse control, planning, and follow-through. Also, a smaller hippocampus, an area of the brain involved in learning and memory. Also, reduced volume in the cerebellum, an area involved in coordinating physical movement and thoughts. And lastly, excessive activity in the amygdala, the brain's fear centers. The fourth dysfunctional family is the authoritarian family. Authoritarian parents act like dictators, making great demands but giving little positive feedback. Mistakes are often met with severe punishment, which can include yelling, spanking, or other forms of corporal punishment. In these households, the authoritarian sets the rules, and it's my way or the highway. Children learn to follow rules but don't gain valuable experience in making their own decisions or learning from their own mistakes. Now there's a fine line here that common sense comes into play. The Bible says that if you spare the rod, you'll spoil your child. And if you love your children, you'll spank them when they need a spanking. Like the lady in the story whose father kept a strap over the back of his chair, that's not what the God that created us had in mind. There's a proper way to discipline your children. We'll put it that way. There's a proper way to discipline your children. A godly way. When they grow up, these youngsters tend to have poor self-esteem. May be overly aggressive or excessively shy in social situations. May be prone to anxiety or depression and may be vulnerable to substance abuse due to an inability to control their own behavior. Number five and the last one that we want to look at is the emotionally detached family. In some families, signs of affection and warmth are missing. Emotional unavailability and a lack of hugs, hand-holding, and other physical signs of love teach children to repress their emotions. This causes little ones to bottle up their feelings and have a hard time opening up to others, which can lead to a series of failed relationships. In some cases, it creates problems with self-esteem and feelings of unworthiness. Without loving parents, children are more likely to have a fear of abandonment, school problems, and psychological issues such as a lack of identity or personality disorders. So whichever form of dysfunctionality affects your home, understand that you can overcome these issues with God's help. You don't need to let them ruin your life. Here are some powerful steps that can help you heal from a dysfunctional upbringing. And it doesn't matter how old you are. 
adopt brain-healthy habits. Even if your brain bears the emotional scars of childhood abuse, you can improve your brain function, which will enhance every area of your life. Find a support network. If your family unit isn't there for you, find friends, a church group, a support group, or a therapist who can be a good listener and be there for you when you need help. Also work on relationship skills. Even though you didn't grow up with healthy relationships, you can learn to develop strong bonds with others. And lastly, stop being a victim. When you are a victim, you are powerless to change anything. Only when you take responsibility for your own behavior can you gain the power to make changes. No matter who wronged you in the past, how big or how little it was, you can go through life with a victim mentality, holding a grudge, woe is me. Or you can ask the Lord to help you in these, with, this, with this area. Maybe use some of these suggestions, but through God's help and through prayer, there is a way to overcome it and help others. Help yourself and help others. Satan wants you, though, to stay as a victim. Dysfunctional families, the bedrock of a dysfunctional society. Satan's pushing this, and he always has. Because Satan knows that if he can create a dysfunctional family, he can create a dysfunctional community, he can create a dysfunctional town, he can, dis he can create a dysfunctional state, and ultimately, if enough time goes by, he can create a dysfunctional country. And we live in one. Because see, this agenda of dysfunctionality has been one of Satan's biggest pushes since World War II. And he has been very successful and very cunning how he has got our country to where it is today. And a lot of it is through naivety. I want to read two things that I found that I thought I'd share with you and then I want to end with a really quick story. This quote says, Are you the person trying to make everyone else better? Then you're a fountain breathing life into every interaction instead of sucking the life out of it. That was from Dave Alpern, president of Joe Gibbs Racing. He started his career at Joe Gibbs Racing in 1993 as an unpaid intern as a janitor. Now he's the president. Here's another quote. Kids can spot a phony. So it's important to be an it's important to be authentic in the home. I love Jesus and I'm excited about him in my home. 
It's important to tell your kids what Jesus is doing in your life and how He's spoken to you through Scripture. Rachel Ruth Lot Wright. That's Billy Graham's granddaughter that said that. Oh, how important it is for our children to see us emotionally involved with Jesus in our life through good times and bad times. It's so important for our children to see us as parents working through issues together, hugging each other, holding hands, kissing one another, being emotional with each other, being real with each other. To our children, we are Jesus until they develop their own relationship with Him. And oh, how many times I've Satan will take advantage of our naivety, our nai naivety, however you say that. And in closing, I want to share with you a story that I thought about in developing this, how naive we can become sometimes like little children, and Satan takes advantage of it every single time. When our oldest daughter was about four, I sat down with her and I told her. I said, Delana, from this point forward, you're a big girl. And I said, as a big girl, I want you to remember something. She said, what's that, Daddy? I said, from this point forward, she was three or four. I said, no one is to ever see you without your clothes on, without your mother's permission. Not your daddy, not your grandpa, uncles, aunts, doctor, no one is to ever see you without your clothes on, without your mama's permission. Well, let me tell you how she took that to heart. One day, her papa and I were working at the tailgate of one of our trucks there in the yard, and she was out there with us climbing around on the truck. And she slipped off the tailgate, and somehow or another, the garment she had on, the strap of it that went over her shoulders, got hung in the tailgate somehow or another and bound up. And we tried and tried, both of us together, and we could not get her unhung from that tailgate, and she's hanging there. And finally, I said, we have no choice but to Take her, take her out of her clothes to get that untangled and get her unhung. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you it would have been easier to put a garment on a wild bobcat than to get her out of them clothes. Fast forward just a little bit. Same little girl. Sitting in the middle of her bathtub taking a bath one day. I needed something out of that bathroom. I knocked on the door. Who is it? I said, it's me, Daddy. I said, Delana, I'm sorry, but I have to come in there and get something. So I need you to shut your eyes. Yes, Daddy. I said, you got your eyes shut? She said, yes, Daddy. I went in the bathroom, I got what I needed, and I came out. And she had her eyes shut the whole time sitting in that bathtub. 
She was the one in the bathtub. She didn't need to shut her eyes. I was the one that needed to shut my eyes. But see, I tricked her in her naivety. That's how easy Satan can trick us too sometimes if we let him. Okay? Don't let Satan trick you. Kids, Satan is going to try to trick you. Just like he still tries to trick us adults every day. And does over and over and over. I know it's been long, but I hope the things that we've looked at this morning were helpful to you in some way. This was very healing for me in my life because it was very personal. You have no idea how personal this was with me. But I wanted to share it with you and I hope and pray that it just helps one person in some way and that God will be glorified, magnified, and praised throughout all ages. If you're here this morning you're not a child of God, don't wait any longer. Come under the blood of Jesus Christ. Have your sins washed away and Satan's hold on your life will be broken forever. If you're a child of God this morning and you're, you're down with your face in the sand and Satan's got his foot on the back of your neck and you need some help to get back up, the prayers of the church, this body will be more than happy to help you with whatever need you have. So please come forward as we stand and sing the song that's been selected. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.